Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra. Today is the 8th of April, 2022. You have come to Authentic Biochemistry Podcast, and I'm delivering this lecture from the Inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. We've been talking about diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes in association with obesity, and we're now at lecture 28, and we're going to talk about the kidney involvement in the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes. Now, in order to do that, I have to explain a little bit about kidney anatomy. Although the kidney is a vital organ, and we, of course, we have two kidneys, um, the liver gets a lot more attention because it's, a, it's an organ that becomes diseased earlier in life, and because of the illnesses that can precipitate from metabolic disorders, much of the disease in the liver can go occult for maybe even decades before it's recognized. Now, recently, because of scanning techniques, we've been able to isolate um, fatty deposits in the liver and have associated that with obesity and with type 2 diabetes, with metabolic syndrome, and also... Um, leading to uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. We've talked a lot about that. We haven't talked that much about kidney, although I did talk about kidney cancer. I look back at my lectures. I probably gave you six lectures on that about a year, year and a half ago. Um, but that was too long ago for you to reflect back on that. And plus, I don't think I was emphasizing to any significant degree the diabetic component. So more about kidney anatomy. A frontal section through the kidney will reveal an outer region. Of course, that would be the renal cortex. And then the inner region, it would be called the medulla. The renal columns are connective tissue extensions, and they will radiate downward from the cortex through the medulla. And they effectively separate all of the submedular structures called the renal pyramids and the renal papillae. Now, the papillae are bundles of the collecting ducts. It's a major component of the kidney. And these collecting ducts transport urine, which is essentially synthesized in the nephrons. And the transport goes from the nephrons to the calices of the kidney, ultimately for excretion. So the renal columns basically serve to divide the kidney into, depending on the way that you look at the structure, six to eight lobes. And they provide the supportive framework for the vessels that enter and exit, of course, the cortex. So you have pyramids, you have renal columns taken together, those constitute the lobes. Then you have the renal artery that first divides into segmental arteries, followed by further branching to form interlobular arteries that pass through those renal columns, ultimately reaching the cortex. Now the interlobular arteries in return branch into what are known as arcuate arteries and then cortically radiate 
into other arteries, those are called the cortical radiate arteries, and then into the afferent arterioles. The afferent arterioles actually uh, function with somewhere on the order of magnitude of over 1 million nephrons in each kidney. So nephrons are the functional unit of the kidney. This is probably what's more, what you more remember from anatomy class, either in uh, undergraduate or in medical school or in graduate school. Um, and so the nephrons, what do they do? They essentially filter the blood. And of course, not only that, they have to balance water and all of the necessary components in the blood that are supposed to remain in circulation. So those afferent arterioles I just mentioned to you form a tuft of high pressure capillaries. And that, that is called the glomerulus. This is where the filtration is actually occurring component of the nephron now. So the rest of the nephron consists of a continuous tubule whose proximal end surrounds that glomerulus in an intimate uh, capsule called the Bowman's capsule. So you have the glomerulus and the Bowman's capsule. Together they form what's known as the renal corpuscle. So the glomerular capillaries filter the blood and part of that filtration is just based on molecular size, that is diameter. But after passing through the renal corpuscle, the capillaries form a second arteriole, which is, of course, an afferent arteriole. And then these will next form a capillary network around the more distal portions of the nephron tubule, the peritubular capillaries, and what's called the vasa recta. Uh, ultimately, they return to the venous system. Now, as the glomerular filtrate moves through the nephron, those capillary networks recover most of the solutes and water, and they return them to circulation. As I said, this is a filtration process. It's not, it's not an elimination process, except at a very small level, right? Now, since a capillary bed, which is basically the glomerulus, drains into a vessel that in turn forms a secondary capillary bed. You, uh, you have essentially uh, described a portal system. The only portal system in which the arterial is found between the first and second capillary beds, actually. Portal systems also link, for example, the hypothalamus to the anterior pituitary and the blood vessels of the digestive viscera to the liver. We've talked about those in the past. And again, you probably remember this from anatomy. Now, nephrons take the simple filtrate of the blood and modify it, metabolize that filtrate into urine. Many changes, and a major component of urine, of course, is urea. Major changes that take place in the different parts of the nephron before the urine is synthesized uh, and pooled for disposal. So we say forming urine because we're trying to explain that the filtrate becomes um, modified in terms of its composition until it forms urine that's actually eliminated. So the principal role of the nephron 
is to balance the plasma population of organic compounds and water to homeostatic set points and to excrete only those components which are potential toxins into the urine draw. So the way that that works is there are three principal functions. There's filtration, there's reabsorption, and then of course, secretion. There are secondary functions also in the kidney that exert control. Blood pressure via the production of a protein called renin, red blood cell production, and calcium absorption via the conversion of calcidiol into calcitriol, which is, of course, the active form of vitamin D. So renal corpuscles um, are, consist of a tuft of capillaries, which, have, again, remember, that's called the glomerulus, and that's surrounded by that Bowman's glomerular capsule. The glomerulus is a high-pressure capillary bed between the afferent and afferent arterioles, and that Bowman's capsule surrounds the glomerulus, and that forms the lumen, and it captures and directs the filtrate. The outermost part of that capsule, the Bowman's capsule now, is called the parietal layer, and it is composed of simple squamous epithelia. It transitions into the glomerular capillaries to form a visceral layer. Now here, the cells are not squamous, but they are oddly shaped. They're specific cells with specific functions, and they are called podocytes. They extend, they extend like a finger or like a pedicel to cover those glomerular capillaries. Again, it's the filtration unit, remember. So those projections interdigitate to form filtration slits, leaving small gaps between the digits to form a molecular sieve. So when blood passes through the glomerulus, somewhere between 10 to 20% of the plasma filters between those sieve-like fingers, all of which becomes captured by the Bowman's capsule and then funneled. Now, the fenestrae, fenestrae is a, uh, a word that we derive into the word window. The fenestrae in the glomerular capillary actually line up with the spaces between the podocyte fingers or sieve regions. And so the only thing separating the capillary lumen and the basic lumen of the Bowman capsule is that shared basement membrane, which has to remain intact. And that also maintains pressure. So again, podocytes interdigitate with structures called pedicels, and they filter substances, just like fenestrations do. <clears throat> so in a large cell body, you can see them at the top right corner with branches extending from the cell body. And those small finger-like extensions are those pedicels. Okay? So when they interdigitate with other pedicels, they form a podocyte. So the capillary has three podocytes wrapped around it. Maybe that's a little bit more detail than you wanted to know, but now you know podocytes. Now, 
Let me switch to a paper going back to type 2 diabetes. Now, although hyperglycemia is the typical um, readout for type 2 diabetes, its role in podocyte dysfunction is very small compared to how those cells are vulnerable to free fatty acids. So the podocytes, which are going to be in the involvement of the kidney in type 2 diabetic disease, are going to be uh, corrupted not by the hyperglucosemia, but by the increase in non-esterified fatty acids in circulation. So what's the mechanism for the free fatty acids leading to the podocyte dysfunction is the question. And one of the malfunctions is an inhibition of insulin signaling. So podocytes, therefore, are sensitive to insulin. That means they have insulin receptors. And so what is the insulin resistance? Or basically, is that resistance have anything to do with the uh, multitude of insulin receptors that are found in the podocytes? And does the number of those receptors decrease during prodromal diabetes? Or does the podocyte functional association with the insulin receptors become corrupted? That's a question you can ask. So it looks like these free fatty acids directly cause insulin resistance in the podocytes. And it seems that palmitic acid increases a phosphorylation of that serine 307 residue. Remember, that's on the IRS1 protein, right? Insulin response substrate one. So this is the way we're signaling in this system. We're not signaling through the classical insulin receptor um, by causing glute uh, transport to the plasma membrane. We're working through this IRS system. Now, there is some insulin-dependent glucose uptake in the kidney, but remember all the downscale significance of IRS1 signaling that we talked about before when we were discussing it in the um, other tissues, right? Like in the muscle and in the central nervous system. So that means that the insulin involvement here has something to do with AKT, that's a kinase, phosphorylation. And as it turns out, palmitic acid contributes to IRS1 inhibition by activating those same proteins I mentioned yesterday, the I-kappa-kappa and the mTORC1. But in the kidney, there is no involvement of protein kinase C or the Jun kinase. So these two pathways operate independently because if you inhibit each of those pathways with their respective selective inhibitors, you're able to restore insulin signaling. So this is a more complex multi-regulatory system. Right? So it, within the glomerulus, I want you to understand you have the palmitate and it enters into the podocyte and the palmitate will associate with an increase in ceramide production. And remember, that's because the sphingosine base is palmitoyl-CoA fusing with L-serine. 
So increase in free palmitate will increase the production of sphingosine. And then after uh, uh, acyl group added to that amide function, ceramide production. So you have an increase in ceramide when you have an increase in uptake of palmitic acid, free fatty acid. You also have an activation of the mTORC1 pathway. And that's via phosphorylation. So with ceramides going up, you increase the activity of the I-kappa-kappa-beta kinase, which then phosphorylates the I-kappa-beta-alpha kinase, which triggers a decrease in the I-kappa-beta activity, which results in NF-kappa-beta phosphorylation. The I-kappa-kappa-beta that's been induced by ceramide from the increase in free fatty acid, not certified palmitic acid, will also, as I said, trigger the I-kappa-kappa-beta, which will then phosphorylate the IRS-1. And when the IRS-1 becomes phosphorylated via this modality, you lose the activity to activate the AKT, and therefore you get podocyte dysfunction and ultimately the disease state known as diabetic nephropathy. Diabetic nephropathy results from the essential, uh, excuse me, the non-esterified fatty acid, particularly palmitic acid, saturated fatty acid has a much more potent effect than unsaturated fatty acids. There's a reason for that in terms of um, the way these fatty acids are metabolized in the podocyte. Now, maybe I can get that later in the lecture. But that whole thing I just told you was phosphorylation cascade working through ceramide. So you can see how lipid involvement is everywhere in this diabetic nephropathy. Once again, when I tell you the type of diabetes is a dyslipidemia, now I'm giving you the kidney involvement, direct association. So when you look at the road model work and you look at obesity in the road model, and the linkage of type 2 diabetes, you know that there is a significant role for the IRS-1 serine phosphorylation. I told you last time that when you phosphorylate that serine residue, what happens is you develop insulin resistance. The insulin binds to its receptor, autophosphorylates, and then when it goes to uh, phosphorylate the IRS-1, you have inhibited that second stage of the signaling. Now, if you look at the animal models, there's multiple animal models for obesity and T2D, um, they do not function well in studying. And remember before how I told you that animal models fail many times when doing a comparison to clinical work. The animal models do not have a robust diabetic nephropathy in association with obesity, okay? Even when you use leptin-deficient mice um, and a high-fat diet, you don't develop renal pathology. Remember what I told you before, that the lipid metabolism is different depending on each species, that not just species of uh, mammal, it's species of every specific genera and every particular family and order of living systems, okay? And so... That makes perfect sense because each individual species has a unique association 
with lipid homeostasis, depending on how lipid is stored and how, how gluconeogenesis is regulated at the level of carbon source. And we've talked a lot about this in intermediary metabolism. I don't need to go back over it. Now, you do get multiple serine kinases in the animal models. So it's interesting that even though all those kinases I just mentioned to you are um, replicated in the animal model, their dysfunction because of uh, non-certified fatty acids is not the same as when you look at the human model. So remember the PKC family, protein kinase C family included the junk kinases, the June kinases, J and K, the I kappa kappa beta, and then this S6 kinase. All of those kinases will directly interact with the IRS1 protein. And the evidence suggests that the I kappa kappa NF kappa B pathway I just mentioned to you plays a very important role in the induction as well as the chronic inflammatory state. And that means it contributes to all the metabolic disorders linked to obesity and type 2 diabetes that we've covered. Means that because it's always the same starting point, dyslipidemia. So let's get back into this NF-kappa B, okay? NF-kappa B is a protein that forms a complex with the I-kappa beta alpha. And that itself is an I-kappa beta family member, as you might guess. And it normally resides in the cytosol. And when it's in the cytosol, it can be prevented to activate the NF-kappa B from entering the nucleus to, of course, initiate chromatin retailering. However, the activation of the IKK comes by various stimuli, which we just mentioned, for example, not, uh, non-serified fatty acid, free fatty acid, <clears throat> will provoke the phosphorylation of the I-kappa beta alpha protein. It'll cause them to become proteolytically degraded. And because of that, you now release the transcription factor NF-kappa B and get the chromatin retailering. And that retailering results in Reduction of pro-inflammatory cytokines, as well as increases in, in uh, eicosanoids like prostaglandins and thromboxanes. All this, again, is occurring at the lipid-compromised and challenged podocyte of the glomerulus of the diabetic kidney. Okay. So just reminding you where we are. This is all at the level of the podocyte. Now, as you might guess, you get an increase in reactive oxygen, and this is always associated with the kappa B activation. Uh, it's, it's a result of that because of the alteration of bioenergetics and the slowing down of ATP synthesis to meet with the increase in protein synthesis necessary to drive a pro-inflammatory response. <clears throat> Now, this paper I'm reading from, it's a 2020 paper, shows that palmitic acid is directly associated with the phosphorylation of the I-kappa beta-alpha protein. And I told you that that carries out that, that interaction with the, with the um, 
I kappa beta alpha causes that degradation and then that release of NF kappa B. And that this occurs again in the podocyte, which is again associated with the renal cortex. Okay. So whenever you see that oxidative stress signal, I kappa kappa beta, that's the, one of the earlier kinases, what you expect to happen post that activation is some kind of PCD, some kind of programmed cell death. But it doesn't always happen. If you have intermediate kinases like P85 and the S6 kinase 1, now those tend to be associated with mTORC1. So it seems likely that the I kappa kappa and the mTORC1 S6 kinase 1 interact probably by cofosphorylation and protein-protein um, binding and then facilitating transcription factor movement to the nucleus. And all of that leads to insulin resistance because of the switch of the podocyte activity from pure filtration phenomena to a pro-inflammatory response. And the inflammation is being initiated by lipotoxicity associated with nanosterified free fatty acid coming from the depot fat because of obesity, releasing more fatty acids because of the corruption and the adipose that I talked about by the enhancement of the lipases. Remember that? Hormone-sensitive lipase, monoacyglycerol lipase, diacyglycerol lipase in particular. So you're getting a lot of free fatty acid generating. This kicks off this whole nephropathy right, downstream. So that serine phosphorylation, which is induced by palmitic acid and that IRS-1, seems to be a very important and prominent target for regulating and hopefully decreasing the amount of involvement of diabetic nephropathy in the obesogenic T2D patient. And this is going to be a modulation ultimately in the podocyte of that mTOR, uh, not apoptotic pathway, but moving towards autophagy. <clears throat> so elevated levels of palmitate do correlate, as you know, with increases in ceramide. So now I'm going a little bit downstream here to give you the detail you expect from me at Authentic Biochemistry. So you get high levels of palmitate, you get higher synthesis of sphingosine for sphinganine. Then you put in that double bond, you make sphingosine, and then that sphingosine gets uh, isolated at that nitrogen atom. So that amide linkage that makes the ceramide. Remember, that's so a palmitate basically a precursor. So both endogenous and exogenous ceramides, my right told you ceramides can be in circulation. We talked about this last time too will contribute to insulin resistance. And work that is pretty well now described showing that the administration of the toxin myriosin will block homocysteine and high-fat diet-induced glomerular injury in the kidney. Now, this is back again in the animal model. Now, what else we know from this is palmitate exposure in cultured podocytes, this is just cell culture now, will also lead directly to that increase in ceramide. 
So an inhibition of ceramide synthesis using fuminosin B1 or muriosin. Remember, those are inhibiting ceramide biosynthesis. Remember, we talked about these. Will recover, to some extent, the palmitate-induced inhibition of glucose uptake following insulin stimulation. This is all at the potocyte. So you do have some insulin-dependent um, glucose uptake, but remember how that functions. It's not just a clear GLUT4 transport from the endosome to the plasma membrane. It's the involvement of all of these kinases functioning to control transcription and also to control the activation of GLUT transporters, like GLUT2. So I'm just putting together here this whole inflammatory pathway by introducing the fact that ceramides activate directly the I kappa kappa, and then at the component transcription factor, the NF kappa beta pathway. And you get this in many different cells, not just in podocytes. We've, we've discussed this in alveolar, epithelial cells, and also in platelets for platelet aggregation. So all of this is part of the diabetic response. And this is why obesity and diabetes um, as a precondition, as a, as a morbidity um, prior to infection of, say, respiratory tract um, bacteria or viruses can lead to a massive inflammatory response involving liver and kidney, liver and kidney shutdown, leading ultimately very rapidly to a possible death. Okay. So it's all linked up to dyslipidemia, obesity, type 2 diabetes. Let's get the idea now what I'm saying. And, and this goes all the way through the IRS-1. That's the insulin response substrate 1, which is directly phosphor 